0: Welcome to another p podcast. I'm Hannah, and today I'm joined by Dr. Mairead Butler. Um, she's a, an Advanced Rands COG trainee from the Mercy Hospital in Melbourne, Victoria. Thanks so much for coming in today, Mairead.
1: I'm glad to be here. <laughs>
0: Good. Um, so during pregnancy, it's reasonably common for the fetal membranes to rupture before the onset of labor. This condition is also known as pre-labor rupture of membranes, or PROM. Prom affects just under one in 10 pregnancies. And so it's pretty important to have a good idea about how it presents as well as a bit of an approach to management. So, this is what we're going to be talking about today. We'll start off with some definitions, then move into a clinical case, talk about some risk factors, initial investigations, and finish off with an approach to management. Um, but firstly, we've got PROM on the one hand, although I've also heard of preterm pre-labour rupture of membranes, or PROM. Um, Marae, can you tell us a bit about the difference between PROM and PROM?
1: Yeah, sure. So um, PROM, uh, both PROM and PROM involve rupture of membranes before the onset of labour. But the the key difference is that PPROM is preterm, so less than 37 weeks gestation. It's preterm, pre-labour rupture of the membranes, whereas PROM occurs at more than 37 weeks gestation. So we usually call it Term PROM. Um, P-PROM is less common than, than PROM, uh, it affects about 3% of pregnancies, uh, and it's also associated with a higher risk of ma- both maternal and fetal complications, and it requires a different management to PROM, and that's what we're going to really cover today. Uh, and in a tertiary hospital where I work, we see a lot of P-PROM, but in, um, uh, you know, I suppose, you know more regional centers and uh, secondary units you might see more term prom okay yeah great
0: we might dive into a bit of a case yeah sure um so we've got sarah she's a 28 year old g2 p1 woman and she's currently 30 weeks gestation um she's had a previous preterm delivery and in this pregnancy she's been to the ed for some light bleeding during the first and second trimesters and today she's come in and she's presented with a gush of fluid so we know a little bit about sarah
1: but what else do we want to know um, well, the first thing I want to know is a more detailed history about this presenting complaint. Um, we need to mo- know more about what this gush actually is. Um, she's got risk factors for PEPROM, she's got previous preterm birth, and antipartum hemorrhage, antipartum bleeding, uh, but lots of women present with discharge, leaking, loss of fluid or a gush and it's often not um, a strong, so a spontaneous rupture of membranes. Uh, so firstly I'd really want to flesh out the history a bit more um, and then other than that other things we're interested in in terms of risk factors are what's her past obstetric history, uh, we need more details about this previous preterm birth, was it a spontaneous preterm birth, was it iatrogenic, did we induce her early? What gestation was she at? What were the details surrounding it? Was there a previous PEPROM, or was it a silent dilatation type of history that was possibly suggestive of cervical insufficiency? Or did she have an infection or become unwell? And that led to spontaneous labour, um, such as you know, an appendicitis, pylobe? degenerating fibroid and um, did she have a recognized short cervix things like that really you know there's so many questions but what I really wanted the detailed history um, of what is her past past obstetric history looking for risk factors and um, other specific risk factors that we should specifically ask about are is there any history of cervical surgery such as a cone biopsy or multiple let'ses or large let'ses um, and I suppose kind of lesser Risks but associations would be with PEPROM and preterm birth would be a history of uh, bacterial vaginosis or other genital infections, uh, and even, and more rarely still would be congenital uterine anomalies. So there's lots of risk factors, lots of things we could ask. But once we get through the history of the presenting complaint, um, I want to know all about is this woman at risk? Should I be worried about her? Um, is this going to be a PEPROM? Okay, right, well, Sarah, unfortunately, it's not the
0: most amazing historian um she tells us a little bit this sort of sudden onset rush of fluid she hasn't really noticed any significant vaginal discharge up until now she's had no itching symptoms or anything suggestive of a genital tract infection Um, she does not know a huge amount about her last pregnancy she said it was uneventful um up until um she had like an episode of um a similar sort of thing in her previous pregnancy at 35 weeks and that did result in preterm, pre-term delivery secondary to PEPROM mm-hmm. um, but otherwise sort of uneventful uh, pregnancy there was no obvious precipitant or discernible risk factors um, her daughter is currently two years old and well and did spend the first week of her life in the special care nursery but has mm-hmm. not had any issues so getting back to the presenting complaint this gush of clear fluid is this the way that Prom normally presents
1: yeah, it's it's not always a gush. Um it can be ongoing or intermittent leaking. Sometimes it's picks up picked up incidentally when we diagnose oligohydramnios on an ultrasound. Um, so really, the, the diagnosis is based on a convincing or a suggestive history of, you know, leaking, feeling wet all the time. A gosh, it's, it can be so variable. Um, and then secondly, a physical examination, which would involve a sterile speculum examination. And on that sterile spec, you're looking for amniotic fluids, leaking from the cervical canal or pooling in the posterior fornix um and then basically you can get the patient to cough and you might see some amniotic fluid leaking uh, and if you if you don't see any leaking but you think there's a pretty good history and you're not sure then i would recommend an amniocentesis Okay. So I've had a bit of a, done a
0: bit, bit of a Google. Mm. Um, the amni detects a protein called placental alpha-microglobulin 1, which I had to look up,
1: yeah, which too. is found,
0: <laughs> found in the amniotic fluid. And it is also present in the cervicovaginal fluid. Yeah. But the reason that we use an amni is because um, this protein is sort of between a thousand to 10,000 times more concentrated in the amniotic fluid. Um, so even though the test is reasonably sensitive, the positive amni is not hugely specific for ruptured membranes. Mm. But... Yeah. Yeah. Would you agree with that?
1: Well, we put a lot of weight in it. I Mm -hmm. mean, I don't think you should be using it. I think the key is when are you using it like we um, we use them a lot mm-hmm. but I don't think they should be used liberally I think it, I think the main key thing you should do is take a good history um, if the history is really suggestive um, but then the the examination isn't then it is a little bit difficult and then I think it's got a really good place if the history is a bit not very suggestive and then the speculum isn't very suggestive and there's normal fluid I wouldn't I wouldn't go down the road about me sure because yeah. it can get complicated then Um um, and I suppose the other thing, um, if it's unsure about, which we sometimes talk about, is if in doubt, you can always admit the patient mm-hmm. for pad checks. So it's something that we often say admit the patient and um, get the midwife to check the pads and have ongoing pad checks. And if there's oligohydramnios on a scan and the pads are wet, um, you know, that's obviously very clear cut as well. But it is difficult. We've had plenty of patients who it hasn't been a clear diagnosis and i think you just got to use all those modalities and then sometimes revise the diagnosis mm-hmm. if it's you know you're diagnosed at a p prom but it's possibly a false positive and then she has no further leaking in normal fluid you can go back and say actually i think that's a false positive yeah. let's have another look re respect redo the amni potentially or um yeah just kind of you can you can always change your diagnosis it doesn't you know if it doesn't quite fit the picture and sometimes that happens so Sarah's got a
0: reasonably convincing story for PROM. Um, we've then done um, an examination, and on speculum exam, we can see a glistening cervix, and we can see a bit of pooling in the posterior fornix. She does also have a positive amnesia test, and so we're thinking that she's got PROM. Um, it's also important that she has a vaginal swab and MSU to exclude a urinary tract infection or other vaginal infection that can complicate the pregnancy, increasing the risk of premature delivery. But why is it that we really worry about PROM?
1: Um, Well, really, it's because of the two reasons. Um, One is the risk of preterm labour, and the other is risk of infection. So preterm labour, and thus inherently the risk of prematurity, is is really the biggest risk factor. Um, And in terms of infection, um, the next risk is infection, predominantly choroamininitis, which has implications for both the mum and the baby. Um, And then other things that are less, Less important, but I have to be considered, would be the risks of malpresentation, um, with with uh, prematurity, the risk of placental abruption, especially if there's a low level risk of chorioamnionitis, which can lead to a placental abruption, the risk of cord prolapse, um, of anhydramnios, um, and then with anhydramnios, if it's Early on, especially with very extreme p. prom uh, at early gestations, there's a the risks of lung hypoplasia and contractures, and those would be in the ones who have mid trimester p. proms or very early kind of um, third trimester rupture of membranes. And um, so yeah, they'd be the main things. But predominantly, I would say it's the it's the preterm labour, the risks of prematurity, and the risks of infection that are mm-hmm. the main main things. Yeah. So I think that that's kind of the way that's how we target our mm-hmm. management. I
0: don't know if you've come across this mnemonic before, but one that I found um, quite useful mm-hmm. is staff. Yeah, no, I actually. Yeah. So we can break it down. So statin, as in the cholesterol medication, S-T-A-T-I-N. Mm-hmm. So the S stands for steroids, T is transfer, A is antibiotics, T is topolysis, I is infection surveillance, and N is neonatologist. Um, so just as a bit of a caveat, every hospital does things differently. And we're going to discuss um, this in a bit of detail, but um, this is by no means what every hospital does. Um, Although it's kind of like a good general principle
1: for... Yeah, it sounds like a good guide, but I think you've got to look at your own local guidelines, your protocols, and um, be guided by them. And I suppose look at each case on its individual merit. And um, we're big, we we have guidelines, but we're just also big into consensus and involving the patient. And, um, you know, there's not no, always not, you know, no firm and hard and fast rules, uh, but this is, I think, a really good guide, actually, just to remember um, for your for your management of pPROM. Yeah,
0: so if we dive into it, so the S is for steroids. Um, there's been some debate as to when to give steroids. Um, some guidelines say that you should give steroids if they're um, the less than 34 weeks gestation to promote fetal lung development, just because we know that women with PEPROM are at high risk of premature delivery. Um, the Safe for Care Victoria lines now recommend that steroids should be given for all pPROM, irrespective of gestation or thirty-six plus six. There's actually a really good flowchart um, online that Safe for Care Victoria do um, for this, so you can check that out if you're interested. Um, and then onto the T's transfer. So we need to ensure that there's adequate neonatal support in place if premature delivery should occur. Um, a for antibiotics, and again, there's a bit of debate about what exact antibiotics should be given. It's kind of like a um, hospital, sometimes a hospital-specific thing. Um, but essentially we do this because we want to reduce the risk of fetal and maternal infection, um, and it's indicated because it's been shown to prolong the latency. So latency is to increase the time to onset of labour. Um, and so the initial choice of antibiotic regimen has to cover Group B strep until the swab taken on admission is back. Um, so in the absence of a penicillin allergy, um, sometimes IV BenPen can be used for 72 hours concurrently with 10 days of erythromycin, which is the standard choice. But again, it's slightly different depending on what hospital you're at. Um, and then sort of in line with that, also do daily FBEs, CTGs and CRPs for the first
1: 72 hours and then twice weekly. It's so reasonable to do that. It's just so variable. Um... It, it's just so depending on each case and each unit. Um, I think that's a very reasonable approach, though. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, because yeah. I think sometimes, um, rather than Ben Pen, sometimes a combination of IV amoxicillin and ampicillin plus IV um, gentamicin and metronidazole can be used, um, like a triple antibiotic therapy. Um, that's once choroamnionitis is developed, is that right?
1: Yeah, I mean, I would, if if they're saying that the woman has choroamnionitis, she wants delivery, yeah. um, and the treatment being delivering the baby and the placenta, and putting her on triples. But um, I wouldn't put her on triples unless I was. Pretty much committing her to delivery, yeah. But I agree completely. She needs broads. You know, she needs group B strep coverage. Um, until we at least get the swabs back in the first forty eight hours that she's not GBS positive, and then as per the Oracle um trial, we've got good evidence that's putting her on erythromycin for ten days is a is a good thing to do and it prolongs the latency and improves outcomes. So they would be the antibiotics I would choose. And yes, if infected or worried, do the triples. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so the second T is tocolysis, which is also Mm -hmm. controversial understand. Yeah, I'm not, I mean, it's, it's in terms of evidence, I mean, the best evidence for tocolysis is for in utero transfer, so getting her to the right hospital, to the right unit and keeping her pregnant. So um, I think it's cut, it's, there's no doubt about that. You want get, to get, get her to a tertiary, well-equipped unit. Um, and then the other um, reason will be to allow the steroids to get on board for fetal lung maturation. But other than that I'm not a I'm not a big user of tocolysis and tocolysis um has definite paucity of evidence um for its use. So I would say not controversial for transfer and steroids and um, controversial for other um indications and use with caution um especially in p-prom because you do not want to keep somebody pregnant if there's a risk of infection, because obviously sometimes people go into labor because they need to deliver to get rid of the infection. Yeah. So with caution, senior to clinician decision, um, yeah, but keep in the back of your mind as an option. Okay. Yeah. And then the I in anemonic infection surveillance, how is this, how do we monitor this? Yeah, again, um I think I suppose history I, I always go back to history examination investigation. Yeah. So every day I see my patients, I'll say, How are you feeling? Are you feeling okay? Do you feel feverish, sick, unwell, sore, any contractions? How are the baby's movements? Once you get to know the once for a while, you just say, you know, are you feeling off? You're not quite right. Sometimes it's very non specific and it's only when you see these patients day in, day out, that you kind of notice subtle little changes. Mm-hmm. And you got to keep a keep watch on those. That's why continuity of care is really good. Um, I think clinically then, you know, every mum I admit, I say temperature heart rate every four hours while they're awake and less frequently overnight and don't just say that say put parameters in because you know not everybody who sees these women understands that a maternal heart rate of 105 when it's previously you know 60 or you know even a a maternal heart rate of 95 or 100 when it's previously 60 is relevant so Mm -hmm. put parameters in as well say I want to know inform the registrar or resident if heart rate more than 100 if temperature greater equal to 37.5 things like that and then as well as the basic um vitals do a daily abdominal examination assessing for tenderness check the pads any offensive loss is there any blood stain like her? is it clear um and i suppose check for um Always good to know the lie, because if this woman goes into the lie in the presentation, she goes into labour, you want to know how quickly do I need to know about this. If it's a breach, you want to know sooner than if it's mm-hmm. cephalic um, and things like that. And obviously, then a daily fetal heart and a CTG, depending on the gestation, which, again, is a variable from unit to unit. Um, at the Mercy, we might start monitoring people at 26 weeks. Not every unit would monitor so aggressively, um, and it all depends on how easy that monitoring is to, to get. Um, and then I suppose moving on from history and examination, then I go on to uh, baseline investigation. So we start off with our baseline CRP, our white cells, our neutrophils. Um, and then if they all started off to normal, that's great. I might just do them you know, twice a week. depends on the trend and the whole the whole s- clinical situation. But I think a reasonable approach would be to do them twice a week. Maybe if someone's in for many weeks and stable, some places might do, only do it once a week. It's it's really variable. Mm. Um uh, so yeah, that's that's kind of my approach anyway. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: Um and mag sulfate, is there any place for that? Yeah. In
1: uh so when we come to delivery, and, yep. um so the two uses of magnesium, one that's a separate indication. So the other indication for magnesium sulfate would be for fetal... Uh, Neuroprotection. So, we've got good evidence to say it reduces the risks of cerebral palsy in um, premature babies. Um, Good evidence from before 30 weeks, grey area between 30 to 32 weeks, Um, and then after 32, we wouldn't give it. So, if someone's again committing for delivery or very likely to deliver, I would recommend um, magnesium sulfate uh, as a loading dose and then a maintenance dose um, before the baby's born. Um, But Definitely for 30 weeks, you know, possible between 30 and 32. Sometimes the one thing you have to know about magnesium sulfate is magnesium is a tocolytic. Yeah. So sometimes, occasionally, we will induce women with cario because or people who have cardio who we need to get delivered, and they just don't get into labor. They just don't get going. And occasionally, we have to pull back on the magnesium because it's kind of hampering things. But, um, yeah, if they get a loading dose in for the baby's brain, that's good. And then it's, again case by case whether you want to keep it ongoing during the labour induction but it's a good thought yeah it's, it's something that's kind of a little bit newer like in the last say five years so sometimes I have to remind you about that one yeah magnesium mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> good thought and then the end of the is mm-hmm. neonatologist yeah like personally I think the end of the neonatologist is probably the most important thing because mm-hmm. um, as an obstetrician like we will make the decision about when mum needs to be delivered and we will say you know got cardio in labour you know whatever make the decision but actually at the end of the day the best outcomes for the prematurity are a baby being born in a, an appropriately equipped unit so like um, a NICU uh, for extreme premature um Gestations, And I suppose if it's more later on, it would be, you know, a a special care nursery. Um, And then having steroids on board and then magnesium. Those are all the things that actually give the best outcomes to the baby. So I would say the neonatologists have a a huge role to play. So if we go back to our case, um, we admit Sarah.
0: um, And she's just to remind you, she's 30 weeks gestation. Um, We do an examination. She's hemodynamically stable. She doesn't have any signs or symptoms consistent with, with infection. And she's not in labor. Um, so after she's been admitted we give her steroids and we chat with our consultant who reckons that topolysis is a a good way to go and we're regularly monitoring her so the plan is to adopt an expectant management approach until 37 weeks of gestation and then deliver by an an induced labour if there are no contraindications to a vaginal delivery does that sound reasonable right
1: yeah i think i think that's a really reasonable approach and uh, times have changed over the years you know With practice, Um, I think these days aiming for thirty-seven weeks is is the ideal. Getting women getting women to a term gestation, but I would have, I would have a low threshold for delivery between up to definitely after thirty-six weeks, and even between thirty-four and thirty-six weeks. um, Any concerns about infection or um, any issues would have me thinking quite strongly about delivery mm-hmm. um, before 34 weeks I think the aim is to keep this woman pregnant due to the risks of prematurity for the baby so you have to have a very good reason to deliver before 34 weeks between 34 and 36 it's a bit softer and after 36 weeks anything at all would you know in terms of any suggestion of infection would I would recommend delivering. And ideally, yes, if it's a cephalic presentation and she doesn't have any contraindication to a vagina delivery, the the best thing would be to recommend inducing Mm labour. Yeah, for sure. So fortunately for Sarah, she doesn't develop
0: any overt choreo and she goes on to deliver a son at 34 weeks gestation following spontaneous onset of labour. So that's all a good news story. And then in terms of follow-up for her future pregnancies, she is at high risk of developing PPROM. So this is something that she needs to be made aware of. And I think that cervical surveillance and ultrasound indicators of or progesterone would be recommended if the cervix is shortened. Does that sound reasonable, right?
1: Yeah, um, well, we've, we've had a roundabout. About progesterone. Don't get too much into the progesterone um, story today, but basically, I would recommend. I think it's very sensible to recommend cervical surveillance in the mid trimester, so second trimester, and if there's uh, an obvious shortened cervix or shortening cervix, um, an ultrasound indicated cerclage is very reasonable management, mm-hmm. um, or and maybe some progesterone first, and then if progressive shortening as clash um so yeah I think that's a really good idea I think the main thing about women who have complicated pregnancies is that they get informed of their future risk and that they Mm -hmm. have proper follow-up um and things to ameliorate their risk in the future so that sounds like a very sensible plan
0: okay so let's say that Sarah wasn't in fact 30 weeks gestation but she was 37 weeks and she develops prom rather than pre-prom how does the fact that she's got prom change our management
1: Yeah, well, there are are none of the prematurity risks uh, Mm -hmm. to take into account, so it's a question of weighing up whether to initiate delivery with immediate induction of labour or to take an expectant approach. Um, There was a systematic review from 2017 that found that women with term prom that initiating delivery resulted in a reduced risk of uh, charyoneitis and or endometritis and a reduction in admissions to the neonatal special care uh, nursery uh, with no subsequent increase in seizure rates. Uh, But the systematic review also found that these studies weren't high quality enough to suggest that initiating delivery should be the definitive way to manage these patients every time. So, yeah, look, you can kind of do whatever you want and whatever the woman wants. I think at the end of the day, these days, we're getting, um, you know, we're not very paternalistic. And as long as um, there's no obvious indication to get it on and deliver the woman um, that she's you know, basically you need to individualize care. So if there's no contraindication uh, to expected management, you engage in a shared decision-making um, process where the woman's informed and she can choose what's the right approach for her. Um, and resources also come into play on a daily basis. It's really important um, to realize it's not possible to induce every woman... Like, immediately after she ruptures her membranes well not not in my hospital um but I suppose you find a middle ground of when of when to induce them and where as soon as there's space available so if someone ruptures their membranes the night before and it's a busy labor ward um you may not get on with them that night as long as they're well you might just get on with the next morning and that's reasonable Uh, but again it's about each hospital having their own um, guideline involving the woman and as long as there are no contraindication I think that systematic review said you could pretty much go either way yeah um, as long as there's and as long, it's not like you leave them off into the wilderness when you um diagnose it you also give them information and look out for signs of infection mm-hmm. um, and you can change the plan at any time mm-hmm. so is there a role for antibiotics
0: in management of term prong?
1: yeah um so look it's um again something that's there's, you know, we're getting a lot more into antibiotic stewardship these days and there's been a lack of evidence that there's any benefit but there is some evidence that prolonged ruptured membranes is associated with increased risk of infection and that um, rates of cardio increase with the longer latency especially after 12 or 18 hours of ruptured membranes uh, and that giving antibiotics has been shown to reduce these infections so our unit would recommend antibiotics after 18 hours of ruptured membranes and um, but some women have already delivered in that time. Um, I'm not 100% sure what other units do. Uh, That would be what our protocol would be. Well, that all sounds good.
0: I think that kind of might go into a bit of a summary now. Yeah. Um, So PEPROM is diagnosed if the membranes rupture before 37 weeks, and the diagnosis is made based on history, examination, and relevant investigations, which can include an Amneshaw test and an ultrasound. Um, In the case of PEPROM, we're primarily concerned about potential infection, um, at preterm delivery. So management's largely directed to prevent these. And so then that's when the statin mnemonic can come in as a bit of a scaffold. So S for steroids, if less than 34 weeks, but then there's a bit of, um, yeah. bit of room to manoeuvre there. T for transfer, A for antibiotics. Um, again, that kind of depends on what hospital you're at. Um, tocolysis, which is a bit controversial, um, if less than 34 weeks. Um, infection surveillance and neonatal review. Um, and then manage expectantly with the aim to deliver at thirty-seven weeks, if no contraindications. But again, a patient-centered approach just case by case.
1: Yeah, definitely. You just, yeah. you just gotta, you just gotta see, treat each woman in each case on the specific circumstances. But I think those are the broad principles, and I mm-hmm. think it's very reasonable management, and it's very reasonable to aim for thirty-seven weeks, um, given the better outcomes with um, babies with advancing gestation, as long as there's no risk of. Um, Uh, or there's no obvious clear infection um, obviously then you would expedite delivery Mm -hmm. depending on which way the baby is presenting ideally induce if cephalic and cesarean I suppose if there's another presentation Great, so I think that's it from us today Thanks for listening to this
0: week's People's Podcast and we will speak to you next time Thanks for having me